Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. And then from Ephesians chapter two, verses one to five, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. This is the word of the Lord. Hey kids, I got a question for you. When it's bedtime, do you, some of you have a difficult time going to your room and falling asleep? And yeah, and some of our adults do too, right? Yeah, I see your hands. Sometimes it's because we're afraid of the dark or afraid of being alone, right? And, but I've discovered that there's a strategy that many of you will employ. It's called just one more. Just one more story, mom. Just one more cup of water. Just one more hug, right? And it's all often to delay the inevitable. And that's the case that happened with our children, too, Ashley and Evan. After our routine of walking through the day, reading our Bible story for the night, and together with them, we'd find that uh, they for one more thing. And I'd take them into bed, but they would want to in the room and sit together with them until they fell asleep. So I would sit there in the dark room with my laptop and the you know, sh showing up uh, in the darkness of the Again? We tested this a lot. I, I, I tested it for a long time. Bedroom was like next door, and our beds were literally like 15 feet from one another on the other side of the wall. Their fear of being alone or being in the dark real for them. Perhaps it was fears of monsters or fear of the dark or being away from mom and dad for overnight. Oh, you got a question? A fear of what's in the dark, yeah. And sometimes it feels a little irrational, and as we, and, but, we, but that fear is real. Being alone by ourselves often forces us to confront 
some of those fears. Now, most of us as we grow up, you know, our sleep routine is something a little bit easier. But I wonder if our fear of being alone, of being in solitude, still remains. Because confront our emotions and our fears in solitude. You know, just to recap, last week we opened this on solitude, the solid practice. And we learned about the importance of solitude and how solitude is being away from distractions and inputs for a time so that we can be alone with God. And there we try and limit the inputs to be one, God is our input, and secondly, our hearts laid open before God. And last week we heard how spiritual writer Henry Nouwen doesn't see solitude as this private, therapeutic place. Solitude isn't meant to be a day spa for the soul where introverted Christians get to go and chill and relax. Instead, Nouwen says that solitude is meant to be a place of encounter. A place of encounter where we are transformed by the, in the presence of the God of love. And there in that encounter, there are three primary encounters that can, can take place in solitude. There's one, an encounter with ourself, all of our pains and our burdens. Secondly, an encounter with our enemy. And third, an encounter with our God. And so today, we're going to look at the encounter with our enemy. And next week, Bethany Blankespoor is going to take a look at, lead us in this, how solitude helps us encounter our self and all that we carry. So for today, as we look at encountering our enemy, there's four movements we're going to walk through together. One, solitude as a battleground. Two, our enemies. Who are they? Third, enemy resistance. And four, our advocate. So Julia read for us four, where Jesus is being tempted by Satan in the eremos. That's the Greek word for the wilderness or the solitary place or the lonely place. Jesus was alone, we're told, for 40 days and 40 nights. And because of that, he was also hungry because he fasted during that time. And there in that quiet place, he encounters, encounters not just God in, the, in prayer, but he encounters the enemy of our faith, whom we call Satan. Now, Satan comes and tempts Jesus to use his divine power to feed his hungry stomach, to use his, demonstrate his power by jumping off a high mount or high place for protection. Or take, being taken up to the top of a mountain to say, I will give you all of this if you bow down to me. Now, if you've been around the church for a little bit, it kind of, the story kind of loses its, some of its impact. And yes, there's Jesus. And yes, there's a talking Satan. But let's just consider the facts of the story. That as they're presented to us. Now, before Jesus goes to us in the previous chapter, we're told that Jesus' identity and his calling as the Son of God has just been affirmed in a very profound way as he's been baptized and as he comes up out of the water. He is full. And Matthew tells us in the very first verse that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. In other words, this episode of confronting Satan, it's initiated by God, which is kind of surprising. And why we're told the purpose is, is in order to be tempted by the devil. Jesus is full, affirmed, led by the Spirit 
in order to be tempted by the devil. But if you step back and think about that, why would Jesus be tested after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights? I think in our minds, we think he's at his lowest point. I know I would be after not eating for 40 days and 40 nights, being alone. And you think, yeah, that's the, that's the time that the enemy comes and does his stuff to tempt us. But we forget that though he might be physically fatigued, though he might be physically uh, relationally lonely, he is actually spiritually strengthened having been alone with God for that time. When Satan shows up, Jesus isn't actually weak. He's at one of his strongest points when he is in the wilderness. In solitude, Jesus is at a place of strength. And only then, after 40 days and 40 nights of prayer and solitude, is he at a place where he can confront and defeat the devil. Now, this scene demonstrates to us that solitude isn't a place of weakness, but it's actually a place of strength. You don't go to solitude when you're really weak. I mean, it's helpful, but it's actually a place to be strengthened. And even further, solitude isn't a place of relaxation, of refreshment, but it's actually a place of confrontation. And that's actually how the desert fathers and mothers saw the Eremos, or the wilderness, as well. Here's a little backstory. The 4th century AD is a pretty critical moment in the history of the church. Christianity had just become legalized in the Roman Empire and became the de facto religion in the empire. And for the first time, Christians were no longer getting killed for their faith and no longer getting martyred, which was probably a good thing. But what, what happened was that a culture of Christianity started to be more present in the church. And compromise and corruption came about. And many people professed to follow Jesus, but did not actually live in ways that reflected Jesus' character. Does that sound like something we might be familiar with? So, in response, thousands of men and women left society and fled to the deserts of North Africa, to Syria, and Judea. And their paradigm for going into solitude was not to find refreshment and Sabbath rest, but it was actually spiritual war. See, for them, the Eremos wasn't a place that you go to rest and slow down and breathe and decompress, though there is a place for that in, in solitude. But for the desert fathers and mothers, the desert was where you would go to encounter your demons, literally. Now, in the Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi, one scene where they find Luke Skywalker hiding out is at a Jedi temple. So I think there's a picture of it up here. Now, in real life, this scene, uh, this, this is shot at a Gustinian monastery in Ireland called Skellig Michael. And the original monks named it Skellig Michael because Skellig is a Gaelic word for rock, and Michael is after the Michael who is battling Satan in the book of Revelations. So they named it this place because it's the, in, at the time, westernmost point of, of the known world, at the edge of the ocean, at the edge of chaos, at the edge of where conflict takes place. And so they would go and spend time in solitude to, to, uh, to, to commit their lives to faith and prayer and solitude before God, to battle Satan at the edge of the known 
world. So how does that change your idea of what solitude is meant to be? See, the Eremos, the wilderness, the solitude, is not a place to flee to, but is a place to fight. It's not a place to escape and relax, but it's a place to engage. Now, I get it. Maybe some of you are sitting here listening. It's like, you know, Andrew, you're talking about enemies and conflict and battle, and you know what's going on in the Middle East and all the news feeds and in Ukraine. And some of us have our pacifist inclinations, you know, being coming from Mennonite traditions. And it's like, this got, kind of got me kind of anxious. But to the ancients, they saw these enemies as real things. And they named them as the world, the flesh, and the devil. The enemies of our faith, to our soul. Now, we get the idea of these enemies in Paul's letter to the Ephesians that Julia read for us, where he's reminding them that they are made new in Christ. And in his letter, he names three enemies to their faith, saying, you used to live, okay, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires. So, here in this letter, he names them as the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and the cravings of the flesh, which the desert fathers and mothers summarized in these simple words, the world, the flesh, and the devil. What's the world? The world is a system, the systems of ideas and values and practices and social norms of our society that are disconnected from the goodness of God. The flesh is our base, primal, animalistic desires for self-gratification, and especially in the areas of survival, in the areas of sexuality. It's our lust, it's our greed, it's our anger coming up from inside of us. And the devil isn't just some literary metaphor for evil that you know, ancient primitive people created. But in the Christian story, the devil is a spirit, real spiritual being who is animating the force of evil in our soul, but also in the world around us. And this, the devil is at war with all that is beautiful, all that is good, and all that is true that is reflective of God. So when we go into solitude, we can encounter all three enemies here. We encounter the world when we get a little distance from the noise of this world, all the distractions and all the inputs of the world, and we begin to see just how the norms of our sinful society have come, that we have come to accept as, oh, yeah, that's normal, and how we've compromised parts of our lives, and we begin to take on the values and the ideas of the world that deny the reality and deny the leadership of the living God. That's the world, and that's how we encounter it in solitude. We also encounter the flesh. When we're in solitude, we begin to see our own bent and warped desires that in our bodies, in our hearts, that all come up to say, you know, I think my way is better than the way of Jesus, the way of his kingdom. And when we're in solitude, we also encounter perhaps the devil in these demonic thoughts that assault our mind, saying, did God really say that's good? Do you think God really loves you if he wants you to do that? I think God, do you think God? That's often how it shows up. 
And if you notice in encountering these enemies, it t doesn't take place in supernatural circumstances with fireballs firing at one another or, or like levitation or spiritual, like these battle, battles with weapons. In solitude, we find the greatest threat is the busyness of our mind. Distractions. The desert fathers and mothers highlight this in their observation of Matthew chapter 4. Consider this, consider this, when Jesus confronts Satan, how does this conflict play out? It's nothing like an epic battle of the Marvel Avengers versus Thanos. It's nothing like the bat or, or like an MMA um, uh, cage match. Instead, the battle takes place between, in, the play, in the mind between the truth of Scripture and the lies of the evil one. That's the battleground. The fight with these three enemies of our soul is primarily a battle with our minds and our, thought, with, and our thoughts and these ideas that are contrary to the will of God. One desert father named Evagrius of Pontus wrote a book, probably would be a New York Times bestseller just based on the title, saying, Talking Back, a Monastic Handbook for Combating Demons. He noted how Jesus' response to the devil wasn't to engage in a debate or a dialogue. Satan was smart enough to use scripture with Jesus, he, but he attempted to twist the interpretation to appeal to the carnal desires of hunger and of glory and of recognition. But Jesus simply responded and directed his attention to the truth of scriptures as he knows to defeat the lies of the enemy. You know, Jesus' examples for us shows us the importance of Scripture in this encounter with the enemy. Yes, of course, God is a God of love, and God is a God of relationship. And yes, God does come to each personally through the work of God's divine spirit. But we actually come to know the character of the living God, revealed in the story of Scripture, and especially in the life and work of of Jesus, the Son of God, who is God in the flesh, as fully revealed ever in history. So when Je Satan comes to tempt Jesus, Jesus' response with Scripture to, Satan's to Satan is immediate and it's internalized. He didn't have Google. He didn't have a phone pocket. He just knew it, and he responded. Because you will see that in the text. Every time Satan said something, Jesus answered, it is written, it is said, it is written. Jesus' resistance to Satan reflects a life that is immersed in Scripture. And to ignore the role of Scripture in our relationship with God is kind of like ignoring the words and actions of someone that you're dating and relying, relying solely on their online dating profile. For example, if you're on a date with them for the first time, and you're listening to what they say and what they, what they do, and you're like, wait, wait, hold on, hold on a sec. Okay, can you just tilt your head a little bit more like this and smile and suck in your gut a bit more and, uh, and, and just be funny because your online profile said that you're funny, right? Now, that sounds really ridiculous in how we would relate to others, but I think we often do that with God. Rather, when we do that, we're actually having a relationship with our image of God rather than with the actual revealed character of God, especially in Jesus. 
You know, we'll get to the uh, practice of Scripture in the future. But this aspect of solitude, I want you to hear, is not just about rest and refreshment, but about a battleground for our souls. Jesus models to us in Matthew chapter 4 how Scripture is one of those important weapons in this act of resistance to the enemies of our soul. And that's why we've been restructuring our Sunday mornings to have a teaching time at 9.30 to help us. And this morning we just talked about plot and character and narrative in the biblical story, helping us get into the story of Scripture that tells us who God is. The enemies of our soul, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, all work against this work of solitude. So there's this resistance. Uh, the scripture is a resistance to the enemies, but there's also actually resistance to solitude that comes from the enemies themselves. Ruth Haley Barton Wright says this about the practice of solitude and silence. The practices of solitude and silence are radical because they challenge us on every level of our existence. All the forces of evil band together to prevent our knowing of God in this way because it brings to an end the dominion of those powers in our lives. See, we, we get resistance from these enemies because they know that solitude leads us to a place where these enemies are exposed and their power is rendered powerless. So they do everything they can, they're enemies because they do everything they can to keep us from getting there, to this place of freedom. There's resistance in the world through this attention economy part of. Right now we have incredibly smart people and we have AI working 24-7 to keep your eyes locked in on your devices 24-7. That's the world resisting. There's resistance in our flesh. There's force. We don't. We say, well, I've got deadlines. Or because I just had a really good worship session with Jesus. Or we might even say, well, because God is gracious and he meets me in the midst of my busyness, I feel close to God. And we resist solitude, being alone with God. There's resistance from the devil himself or that the Apostle Paul calls powers of this world and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He gets that from six. In C.S. Lewis's satirical book is Screwtape. And he's mentoring a young demon named Wormwood. And Scute, uh, who's trying to tempt this young man that they call the patient. Now, Screwtape says that there are two things that the devil can't stand. Their boss, the big boss. He can't stand the noise. He can't stand, uh, no, sorry, he can't stand music. And he can't stand silence. Because both of those things open the human heart to God. Music and silence. So, the devil's countermeasure to this is noise. Noise of busyness, noise of distractions, noise of inputs, and noise of smartphone notifications and emails. And then Screwtape says this 
very profound quote saying, so we will make the whole universe a noise in the end. This is the agenda of the evil one. To fill your life with noise, with distraction, with triviality, with diversion, so that you will never be alone with God. Recognizing the resistance is recognizing all this mysterious human and non-human forces that are conspiring to keep us from true solitude with God, to keep us from silence, to keep us from stillness. And when we try to go to the Eremos, when we try to go into solitude, we will be met with resistance. That's what I'm trying to get at. It's nothing to be afraid of. It's just saying this is a real thing that's preventing us from entering into solitude and enjoying all that God has to offer to us so we can recognize these distractions. But the great thing is, is that we're not doing this alone. We, like Jesus, follow the Spirit into the wilderness, into solitude, and allow God to encounter the enemies of our soul and to encounter, ultimately, God himself. Yes, solitude can be a place of rest and refreshment. Thank God for that. But solitude, the solitude of Jesus, the solitude of John the Baptist, and the solitude of Elijah, as we learned last week, that was a solitude of a battleground, of conflict, to engage with the enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil, enemies of our relationship with God. And those who are willing to engage honestly with these enemies, humbly, and ultimately with the help of the Holy Spirit, will find true freedom in Christ. We won't need, find, feel the need to fill our lives with noise and distractions and just ask for one more thing, one more thing, God, one more thing, God, because we get God himself. We can face the pains and the struggles and the burdens that are on our hearts with the help of God. A young monk once came to Abba Moses, one of the desert fathers, and asked for his advice on prayer. And Ab, uh, um, Abbas said this, Abba Moses said this, stay in your cell and it will teach you everything you need to know. Stay in your cell meaning stay in solitude. Don't give up on it before it's done its work of freedom in our lives and in our hearts. Now, we don't have to be monks. We don't have to be nuns living in the desert to benefit from the gift of solitude. Solitude is this invitation to encounter God and to encounter the enemies of our souls so that we can be a person of peace, so that we can be a person of yielded trust to the living God, and ultimately to become a person who is truly liberated by the resurrected Jesus. Henry Nouwen reinforced this idea Further saying, the task is to persevere in my solitude, to stay in my cell until all my seductive visitors get tired of pounding on my door and leave me alone. That's true freedom. When you're no longer having your ear bent to all the noise that's coming at you. The task is to persevere until the voice of the enemy is defeated by the voice of God. And persevering in solitude, that's our responsibility. That's on us. But God speaking, that's God's responsibility. And we have great comfort in knowing that we don't fight these battles alone. We don't have to persevere alone. When we are in true solitude, we are in the presence of the only being in the universe 
that actually matters. We are led, as Matthew reminds us, we are led there by the Holy Spirit, and we are led through it by the Holy Spirit. And on the other side is freedom. Freedom to be who God created us to be. Freedom to be people of peace in the world. Because we are free from the grip of the world, from the grip of the flesh, and of the devil. It's when we are free from these things that we can truly be a force of good in the world, in God's grace. You know, the Spirit of God, as we're told, led Jesus into solitude. The Spirit of God strengthened Jesus while he was in solitude. And we find that in Luke's account of this story, we, it says this. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread. Jesus leaves solitude. He goes back to life. He goes back to the fullness of ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the fruit of true solitude, to return to our lives full of the Spirit, walking in the way of Jesus wherever we go. May we all find courage with the help of the Holy Spirit to face these enemies to our flourishing in Christ honestly and enter into the freedom of the resurrected life of Jesus who is already at work in all who trust him. Thanks be to God.